Chapter Eighteen of In the Mayor's Parlor by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Loose strands. By business time next morning, Brent had cast aside all thought of the previous day's proceedings and of his defeat at the hands of the old gang, and had turned to affairs which were now of far more importance. He had three separate enterprises in hand. To be sure, they were all related, but each had a distinctive character of its own. He specified all three as he ate his breakfast at the Chancellor, where he was still located. First, now that he had done with his electioneering, for the time being, he was going to work harder than ever at the task of discovering Wallingford's murderer. Secondly, he was going to marry Queenie, and that speedily. Queenie and he had settled matters to their mutual satisfaction as soon as the row with Uncle Simon Crood was over, and they had already begun furnishing the house which Brent had bought in order to constitute himself a full-fledged Burgess of Hattlesborough. Thirdly, he was going to put all he knew into the articles which he was writing for the Monitor. Two had already appeared. He was going on writing them until public opinion, gradually educated, became too strong for the reactionary forces that had beaten him yesterday, but which he would infallibly defeat to-morrow, or, if not to-morrow, the day after. And first, the murderer. He fetched Queenie from Mrs. Appleyard's that morning, and utterly careless of the sly looks that were cast on him and her, marched her through the marketplace to Hawthwaite's office at the police station. To Hawthwaite, keenly interested, he detailed particulars of Queenie's discovery about the typewritten letter and produced her proofs. Hawthwaite took it all in silently. "'You'll have to go into that, you know,' concluded Brent. "'Now that I've got through with that election, I'm going to give more time to this business. We've got to find out who killed my cousin, Hawthwaite, somehow. It's not going to rest. I won't leave a stone unturned.' And there, he added, pointing to the sheet of paper on which Queenie had made specimens of the broken type of Simon's antiquated machine, is a stone which needs examining on all four sides. Hawthwaite picked up the sheet of paper, twisted it in his big fingers, and looked over it at the two young people with a quizzical smile. "'I understand that you and Miss Queenie there are contemplating matrimony, Mr. Brent,' he remarked. "'That so, sir?' "'That's so,' replied Brent promptly. "'As soon as we've got our house furnished, we'll be married.' "'Then I can speak freely and in confidence before Mrs. Brent that's to be,' responded Hawthwaite with another smile. "'Well, now, what you've just told me isn't exactly fresh news to me. I'll show you something.' He turned, drew out a drawer from a chest behind his chair, and finding a paper in it, took it out and handed it to his visitors. "'Look at that now,' he said. You see what it is? Brent saw at once. It was a half-sheet of note-paper on which were examples of faulty type precisely similar to those on Queenie's bit of evidence. Hello! exclaimed Brent. Somebody else been at the same game, eh? I'll tell you, answered Hawthwaite, settling himself in his chair. It's a bit since, uh, let us think now, yes, it would be a day or two after that facsimile appeared in the monitor, that a young man came to me here one evening, respectable, artisan sort of chap. He told me that he was in the employ of a typewriter company at Clothford, 
which mr brent as miss queenie there knows is our big town only a few miles away he said that he'd come to tell me something in confidence the previous day he said mr crood of hathelsborough had come to their place in clothford and had brought with him an old-fashioned typewriter which he told them he had bought when such things first came out he wanted to know the thing being he said an old favourite if they couldn't do it up for him go through its mechanism thoroughly supply new letters and so on they said that they could he left it to be done and it was handed over to this young man now then this young man my informant has some relations here in hathelsborough a day or so before simon crood called with his machine they sent him the young man a copy of the monitor with this facsimile letter enclosed being concerned with such things in his trade he was naturally interested in the facsimile and of course as an expert he noticed the broken letters however he didn't connect the facsimile with crude's machine at first but happening to look at that machine more narrowly to see exactly what had to be done to it he as he phrased it ran off the keys on a sheet of paper and he then saw at once that he had before him the identical machine on which the threatening letter to our late mayor had been typed and so he came to me what have you done about it asked brent hawthwaite gave him a knowing look well i'll tell you that too he answered i've got the machine it's there in that box in the corner the clothford firm will make an excuse to mr crood that they've had to send this machine away for repairs eh of course i'm not going to let it out of my possession until well until we know more there's no doubt he wrote that threatening letter observed brent oh no doubt no doubt whatever agreed hawthwaite what about that handkerchief and the inquiry at the laundry asked brent hawthwaite accompanied his reply with a nod and a wink that's being followed up he said don't ask me any more now we're progressing and i believe in the right direction this time do you leave it to us mr brent you'll be surprised before long and so will some other folks you go on with those articles you've started in the monitor it doesn't do for me to say much being an official he added with another wink but you'll do some good in that way there's a lot under the surface in this old town sir that only needs exposing to the light of day to ensure destruction public opinion mr brent public opinion you stir it up and leave this matter to me i may be slow mr brent but i'll surely get there in the end good it's all i ask said brent only get there he took queenie away but before they had gone many steps from the superintendent's office hawthwaite called brent back and leading him inside the room closed the door on him your young lady'll not mind waiting a minute or two he said with a significant glance as she already knew about old simon's typewriter i didn't mind telling that i knew d'ye see but there's another little matter that i'd like to tell you about between ourselves and to go no further you understand just so agreed brent well continued hawthwaite there may be nothing in it but i've always had a suspicion that there was nothing definite got out of either dr wellesley or mrs saumarez about their well i won't say love affairs but relations anyway that there was something mysterious about the sort of three-cornered relations between her and wellesley and your cousin i'm as dead certain as that i see you 
I've an idea that somehow or other those relations have something to do with your cousin's murder. But now, this is it, you know, I dare say, that at the back of Mrs. Somarez's garden at the Abbey House there's a quiet, narrow lane, little used. I know it, replied Brent. Farthing Lane. Just so. And why so-called? None of our local antiquaries know, said Hawthwaite. Well, not so many nights ago I had some business in that lane at a late hour. I was watching for somebody, as a matter of fact, though it came to nothing. I was in a secret place, just as it was getting nicely dark. Now then, who should come along that lane but Crevin Crude? Crevin Crude, exclaimed Brent. I? Crevin Crude, repeated Hawthwaite, and, thinks I to myself, what may you be doing here, my lad, at this hour of the night? For, as you know that lane, Mr. Brent, you'll know that on one side of it there's nothing but the long wall of Mrs. Somarez's garden and grounds, and on the other a belt of trees that shuts off Robinson's market garden and orchards. I was safe hidden amongst those trees. Well, Crevin came along. I recognized him well enough. He sort of loitered about, evidently waiting for somebody. And just as the parish church clock struck ten, I heard the click of a latch, and the door in Mrs. Somarez's back garden opened, and a woman came out. I knew her, too. Not Mrs. Somarez, suggested Brent. No, replied Hawthwaite, not Mrs. Somarez. But that companion of hers, Mrs. Elstrick, tall, thin, very reserved woman, you may have noticed that she goes about the town very quietly, never talks to anybody. I've scarcely noticed her, except when she was here in court with Mrs. Somarez, replied Brent. But I know the woman you mean. So it was she? Just so, Mrs. Elstrick, said Hawthwaite. And I saw, of course, that this was a put-up job, an arranged meeting between her and Crevin. They met, turned, walked up and down the lane together for a good ten minutes, talking in whispers. They passed and repassed me several times, and I'd have given a good deal to hear what they were talking about, but I couldn't catch a word. They were on the opposite side of the lane, you see, close to the garden wall. And eventually? asked Brent. Oh, eventually they parted, of course, replied Hawthwaite. She slipped back into the garden, and he went off down the lane. Now— they're both tending to elderliness, I think, interrupted Brent with a cynical laugh, but one's never surprised at anything nowadays. So, did you see any love-making? Oh, Lord, save us, no, exclaimed Hawthwaite. Nothing of that sort. They never even shook hands, just talked, and very earnestly, too. Brent reflected for a while. Queer, he said at last. What did they want with each other? I, said Hawthwaite. As I said just now, I'd have given a good deal to know. But Crevin Crude is a deep, designing, secret sort of man, and that woman, whoever she may be, looks just the same. Has she been with Mrs. Somarez long? asked Brent. Came with her when Mrs. Somarez first came and took the Abbey House, replied Hawthwaite. Always been with her. Went away with her when Mrs. S. was in the south of France all last winter. Odd couple, I call the two of them, Mr. Brent between you and myself. Why, exactly, inquired Brent. I've seen nothing particularly odd about Mrs. Somarez, except that she's evidently a highly strung, perhaps a bit excitable sort of woman, all nerves, I should say, and possibly a bit emotional. 
Clever woman, I think, and pretty. Pretty enough and clever enough, assented Hawthwaite dryly, and I dare say you're right about the rest. But I'll tell you why I used that term, at least in regard to her. When Mrs. Saumarez first came here, it was understood that she was the widow of a naval officer of high rank. Well, naturally, the big folk of the neighbourhood called on her when she settled down. She furnished and fitted her house from local shops, and it took her some time to get fixed up, expecting, of course, that she'd return their calls. She never returned a single one. Not one, sir. That certainly sounds odd, admitted Brent. Aye, doesn't it, said Hawthwaite. You'd have thought that a young and stylish woman, coming to live here as she did, would have been glad of society. But though some dozen or so ladies of the place called on her, she never, as I say, returned a single call. In fact, it very soon became evident that she didn't want any society of that sort. She used to go out bicycling a good deal by herself in those early days. That, I fancy, was how she got to know both Wellesley and your cousin. She was fond enough of their society, anyway. Always? asked Brent. He was learning things that he had never heard of, and was already thinking deeply about them. From the beginning? Well, practically, replied Hawthwaite. First it was the doctor, then it was Wallingford. And, he added with a wink, there were folk in the town who declared that she carried on with both, playing one off against the other till the very end. I don't know how that may be, but I do know that at one time she and Wellesley were very thick, and that afterwards your cousin was always running after her. Naturally there was talk, especially amongst the folk who called on her, and whose calls she didn't return. And, to tell you the plain truth, they said things. What sort of things? inquired Brent. Oh, well, said Hawthwaite with a laugh. If you'd lived as long in this town as I have, and been in my position, you'd know that it, like all little places, is a hotbed of scandal and gossip. The women, of course, seeing her partiality for men-friends, said things and hinted more. Then the vicar's wife—Parsons' ladies are great ones for talk—found something out and made the most of it. I told you that when Mrs. Saumarez first came here, it was understood that she was the widow of an officer of some high position in the Royal Navy. Well, our vicar's wife has a brother who's a big man in that profession, and she was a bit curious to know about the newcomer's relation to it. She persisted in calling on Mrs. Saumarez, though her calls weren't returned. She could make excuses, you see, about parish matters and charities and what not. And one day she asked Mrs. Saumarez point-blank what ship her late husband had served on. Now, she says, that Mrs. Saumarez snapped her up short anyway. Mrs. S. gave her an answer. My late husband, said Mrs. S., was not in the British service. And, of course, that wasn't in her favour with the people whom she'd already snubbed. Hmm, said Brent. There were many things in this retailing of gossip that he wanted to think about at leisure. Well, he added after a pause, I dare say all sorts of small items help towards a solution, Hawthwaite, but you're already busy about it. I'm not only busy, but actively so, replied the superintendent. And between you and me and nobody else, I'm expecting some very special professional and expert assistance within the next few days. Oh, you leave this to me, Mr. Brent. I'll run down your cousin's murderer, or murderess yet. Go you on with your articles. They're helpful, 
for the rousing public interest. Brent went away and followed Hawthwaite's advice. His articles came out in the Monitor twice a week. Peppermore printed them in big type, leaded, and gave them the most prominent place in the paper. He himself was as proud of these uncompromising attacks on the municipal government of Hathelsborough as if he had written them himself. The proprietor of the Monitor was placidly agreeable about them, for the simple reason that after the first two had appeared, the circulation of his journal doubled, and after the next three was at least four times what it had ever been before. Everybody in their immediate neighbourhood read and discussed the articles. Extracts from them were given in the county papers. Some of the London dailies began to lift them. Eventually, a local member of Parliament asked a question about them in the House of Commons, and one day Peppermore came rushing to Brent in a state of high excitement. "'The pen is mightier than the sword, Mr. Brent, sir. That's a fact,' he gasped, tumbling headlong into Brent's room. "'Heard the news, sir, all through your articles.' "'Heard nothing,' replied Brent. "'What is it?' "'I had it from the town clerk just now, so it's gospel truth,' replied Peppermore. The local government board, sir, is at last moved to action. It's going to send down an inspector, a real, full-fledged inspector. The town clerk is in a worse state of righteous indignation than I ever saw a man, and as for Mayor Simon Crude, I understand his anger is beyond belief. Mr. Brent, you've done it. But Brent was not so sure. He had some experience of government officials and of official methods, and knew more of red tape than Peppermore did. As for Tansley, who came in soon after, he was cynically scornful. "'Local Government Board Inspector!' he exclaimed, scoffingly. "'Pooh! Some old fossil who'll come here. I'll tell you how. He'll ask for the responsible authorities, that Simon Crude and Company. He'll hear all they've got to say. They'll say what they like. He'll examine their documents. The documents will be all ready for him. Everything will be nice and proper and in strict order, and every man will say precisely what he's been ordered to say, and there you are. The inspector will issue his report that he's carefully examined everything and found all correct, and the comedy will conclude with the farce of votes of thanks all round. That's the line, Brent. Maybe, said Brent, and only maybe. "'You're in a pessimistic vein, Mr. Tansley, sir,' declared Peppermore. "'Sir, we're going to clean out the Augean stable.' "'Or perish in the attempt, eh, Peppermore?' retorted Tansley good-humouredly. "'All right, my lad, but it'll take a lot more than monitor articles and local government board inquiries to uproot the ancient and time-honoured customs of Hathelsborough. Semper eadem, Peppermore, semper eadem, that's the motto of this high-principled, respectably-ruled borough. Always the same, and no change. Except from bad to worse, said Peppermore. All right, sir, but something's going to happen this time. Something did happen immediately following on the official announcement of the local government board inquiry, and it was Tansley who told Brent of it. I say, he said, coming up to Brent in the street, here's a queer business. I don't know if you've heard of it. Mrs. Mallet's run away from her husband. Fact. She cleared clean out and let it be known, too. Odd. Mystery seemed to be increasing, Brent. What do you make of it? Brent could make nothing of it. 
There might be many reasons why Mrs. Mallet should leave her husband. But had this sudden retreat anything to do with Mrs. Mallet's evidence at the inquest? He was speculating on this when he got a request from Hawthwaite to go round at once to his office. He responded immediately to find the superintendent closeted with Dr. Wellesley. End of chapter 18